This is Top Landing Gear. Welcome to Top Landing Gear Full Flaps and our full-length interview with an author who has written some of the most dramatic factual accounts of events in aviation history that you'll ever read. Before now, he'll have been best known for the edge-of-your-seat blockbuster about the Black Buck raids during the Falklands conflict, Falcon 607. He's now turned his attention to another airborne operation during the Falklands with the gripping account of the heroic role played by the Sea Harrier and its pilots during that period in the South Atlantic back in 1982. The book is Harrier 809 and we're delighted to welcome as this week's guest on Top Landing Gear, the author Roland White. Roland, it's really good of you to join us. Not least because we have a huge fan of yours in Jez sitting here who has read Vulcan 607 more than we'd care to mention. We might allow him a question later. I am scarily, Roland, your biggest fan. <laughs> Jez, it's really nice to meet you. We, we can just conduct this between the, the two of you. We may, but you might go well Roy beyond James your... Eight... Rob out of it. Yeah, we might. Well, that probably would work quite well. We may go well beyond your, your time in a bit, but... Um... So it's really nice to meet you all. Thank you for thank having you. me. Well, thanks. This book, my word, I mean, it's quite quite a tome, isn't it? But there is so much content in it that has never come to light before. Much of which is scarcely believable, I found, for a, for a number of reasons. But to have researched such a work in so much detail with the voices of so many involved on both sides must have been a huge undertaking, wasn't it? Well, it was a it was an accident in some ways. Um, the original plan was to try to write a, a quite a short, sharp account <laughs> of eight oh nine's war. Uh, and I'd first spoken to Tim Gedge uh, just after publication of Phoenix Squadron. I mean, uh, ten years ago, to say I sort of had had this thought in mind, and he was enthusiastic then. And uh, I don't suppose either of us thought it was going to take another decade before I got to it. Um, <laughs> But I, I wanted to write actually three books, all of which sort of feed into uh, the creation of the F-35 force at Marham. And once uh, 617 and 809 were named as the two first frontline squadrons, I realised I had the sort of way into the 809 Harrier story that, I, uh, that, that I'd always been sort of looking for. And so as I say, I, I imagined doing quite a short book, but as soon as I got going on it, and went along to the National Archives to look at what there was there to support what I was doing in terms of talking to the air crew. Um, I realised that nobody had written about the air war in the South Atlantic since the archives had been declassified. Oh. And, you know, there's, there's a sort of two metre high stack of uh, files uh, that they have uh, on, on the air war. And, and being a sort of... Uh, vaguely obsessive, uh, I realised that there was no way I was going to do this, be able to do it, without going through those files with a fine fine tooth comb. And, and I just found gems on every page. And because I'd, I suppose I'd, I'd spent a lot of, quite a lot of time wallowing around in the sort of Falklands air war for fun, um, I realised that um, there were little pointers sometimes towards uh, stories that uh, had not yet been declassified, mostly relating to what went on in Chile. 
um, little pointers in there that had somehow kind of slipped through um, the clearance process uh, and provided some really keen insights into what was going on. So it then became a question of trying to thread all of those together in a way that allowed me alongside that 809 story and the story of the Sea Harriers uh, defending the fleet to sort of create something much, much more multi-layered and sort of much more, more something that felt much more like a sort of Tom Clancy thriller. That was the yeah, plan. You know. When you look through the archives, is there still a lot of stuff that is classified that you, you sort of couldn't go into? It's hard there? to know. I mean, there's, you know, there are definitely one or two bits and pieces that you, uh, you can't get access to. There's a file I particularly wanted to look at, um, an admiralty file, uh, which was a review of the um, of the air war. So it was their analysis of the air war, um, mm. and that hadn't been declassified. And um, all of the uh, stuff relating to Chile, the Canberra PR9 spy planes, uh, the the Nimrod R1, which was operating uh, out of a Chile off a Chilean island in the South Pacific. Um, none of that has been declassified. So you really were relying on tiny little snippets, which, and sometimes quite coy allusions to what was going on with the odd redaction that, as I say, you know, once you put them all together, uh, ended up um, becoming uh, a really sort of irresistible um, uh, portrait of what really went on. So that was a really exciting bit of detective work. And then and, you know, then came the depressing thought that rather than being a, an 80,000-word book, it was going to be a 150,000-word book. Well, and, I was um, going to say, it's almost two stories running alongside each other, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah, it is a bit. I, well, I'm I mean, not finished yeah. the book yet, but I have to say I'm, I'm in the sort of critical bit of Operation Folklore, the Canberra story, and I found that really, really interesting. And, it, and it's, it's tantalising because, you know, Officially, they didn't go all the way down yeah. to Chile, but I did no. read somewhere that um, John Snow, the Channel 4 news uh, anchor, who is stationed out or is posted out there to, to report, yeah. for, thinks he saw a couple of cameras um, at, uh, I've forgotten the name of the Chilean, but right down. Uh, Arenas. That's the one. Uh, yeah. Um, and it's really exciting. And I find that, <laughs> I know, and I haven't got to the really juicy yeah. Harrier bits yet. So. Uh, no, I mean, that, that, that's one of the things, where, I mean, it, it, it was incredibly useful uh, in writing about 809 Squadron to have the month in which they were preparing uh, back at Yeovilton filled with things like the Canberras and the, the Nimrods uh, and, uh, and obviously also the, uh, while they were going down then on, because uh, the war started May the 1st, um, uh, 809 left Yeovilton a few days before that, but uh when the shooting war started, they were on Ascension Island. So I then wove in uh, you know, the story of 801, 800, and uh, augmented by 899 and off Hermes and and uh, Invincible as a way of kind of um, keeping people's attention before my sort of dirty dozen uh, or horrible eight or whatever they wanted to call themselves. <laughs> uh, 809 made it down to theatre with uh, the six Harriers from one squadron RAF aboard Atlantic Conveyor. But but um, no, that that... that Chilean stuff, um, I mean, really is tantalising, uh, and and it, it, it hasn't yet um, been written about. And you're, you're right, uh, Jess mentioned um, John Snow. I was in touch with him um, just to sort of uh, stress test what he'd uh, what he sort of reported he'd seen, um, and uh, you know had to judge that against what I was getting from. And eventually, I managed to track down the. The, um, the commanding officer of 39 Squadron, the, the Canberra Squadron, and I spoke to him extensively and also one of the, 
the navigators, uh, Dave Watson, who didn't actually go out South America, but was back here um, testing things like uh, chaff dispensers, um, uh, jamming pods, uh, and uh, various countermeasures which were hastily cobbled onto the camera uh, over the ranges at, um, at Spade Adam uh, to make sure they worked. Also sort of spewing out chaff in the in front of uh, lightnings that were sent up to try to intercept them. I mean, it, it's kind of, if you like aeroplanes, aer- it's just a kind of glorious sandpit <laughs> uh, to play in where you've got, you know, lightnings and cameras and nimrods and sea harries and, and down in the South Atlantic, obviously, um, mirages and skyhawks yeah. and, uh, and things as well. And, and often one of the things which uh, has always sort of excited me about uh, these books is, you know, where you've got something that uh, I think as any red-blooded aviation enthusiast, you really, really wish actually had happened, even if it didn't. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like in, um, in Into the Black, uh, where there was the, there was a, a, a planned, um, uh, rescue mission using a second shuttle uh, for a planned rescue mission to boost Skylab into a, yeah. uh, a higher orbit and keep it um, keep it alive rather than having it sort of crash to Earth in in near Australia. And Fred Hayes, who'd been on Apollo thirteen, was training to do that. But as the first shuttle flight kept moving to the right, uh, eventually he thought, you know what, Skylab's going to have um, go, you know deorbited and re-entered before I ever get a flight on a on a, on a space shuttle. So so he left NASA. Um, but in trying to write about that, you wanted people to to sort of at least be able to use their imaginations to think about how exciting that might have been. And so I tried to uh, sort of you know deal with those sort of what ifs um, in a way that um, is sufficiently tantalising to feel kind of well exciting to me, and I hope as a result um, exciting to uh, to readers with similar sensibilities. Oh, you're not kidding. What I'd love you to do is for the listeners who haven't read it, what is your sort of your big takeaways, your big blockbusters? What is hooking people? Why are they going to read this? But I've read it. I love it. Yeah. But, but what are, you've probably said it a thousand times on interview this week. Well, no, I haven't. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I mean, I'm trying. I was thinking about it um, today, and 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 it's really about how the story evolved. So I think you you start off with something that feels uh, entirely like the Dirty Dozen, and I, I love yeah. that as a notion. You know, you you uh, there's an invasion you weren't expecting. Three days later, uh, uh, a former Sea Harrier Squadron um, boss was told, and he didn't think he was ever going to fly the Sea Harrier again. You're no longer flying a desk. We want you to get back to Yeovilton and put a new squadron together. I mean, it's almost like the A-team, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Three days is that. You've got no aeroplanes. You've got no pilots. We'll leave it to you. Sort it out. Oh, and you've got to leave in three weeks' time. Um, and so there were pilots dragged back from Arizona, from California, from Australia, uh, two pilots from RAF Germany who'd flown Harriers who were chosen because they'd previously had some single-seat uh, air defence experience on lightnings. Um, guy who was running the simulator, uh, somebody else who was um, uh, uh, on one squadron at Wittering worked, working for Peter Squire, who was a former Red Arrow. Um, they were playing golf at the time. Uh, that He was called back to Yeovilton and Squire said to him, you know, don't you think we should have been playing bowls? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so you've got all these people sort of congregating back on uh, at Yeovilton with very, very little time to, uh, to get themselves ready. And so... You know, by the time uh, they went south, you've got people like John Leeming and Steve Brown, the two RAF Germany Harrier pilots, that ha- having less time in the cockpit of a Sea Harrier, and less than 10 hours, um, than 
RAF Spitfire and Hurricane pilots mm. had had on the the conversion units before going into battle in the, the Battle of Britain. So that that was the you know that's the sort of uh, <laughs> quite, quite a long elevator yeah. uh, ride that's for sure. But that's the elevator pitch. Yeah. But then as when I got into it, I realized that actually the story had become much, much more substantial. And it, it wasn't then simply the story of how to try to defend the carriers from air attack um, using the sea harriers. And this is the sort of critical um, uh, uh, thing at the heart of the story. It's the MacGuffin, if you like. It, it, it's the idea that um, those carriers were absolutely mission critical. Um, Sandy Woodward reckoned that if he lost Invincible, he could conceivably keep going. Uh, but if he lost Hermes, it was head home. The war yeah. was absolutely over. So those carriers had to be protected from air attack uh, by the Argentinians at, at any cost. And what I then I discovered looking through the archives, that the effort to protect them from air attack didn't just revolve around um, goalkeeper destroyers um, acting as picket ships sort of um, way ahead of the carriers. It didn't just rely on the sea harriers. It didn't just rely on the... the um, the, the, the Type 22 frigates, uh, Broadsword and Brilliant, that, that um, protected them with Seawolf missiles. It also involved this sort of epic effort um, back home, uh, around the world by MI6 in a sort of sting operation mm. to stop the Argentinians getting more um, uh, Exocet missiles. Um, in uh, Brazil, where there was a sort of argument between the MI6 man in um, uh, in the embassy and the RAF attaché about how they were going to stop the uh, Argentine well, resupply. Was that sort of information pipe. reasonably easy I, to come across, or did, did you have to sort of? No, I mean, I, I, I sort of ca- I, there was the, the MI6 side of the story. Uh, I came across in a brilliant book actually um, called uh, Exocet um, Falklands, uh, which is by uh, Ewan Southby Taylor, um, who uh, former Royal Marine, and, and that's very, very good. And he obviously had an MI6 contact. Yeah. The RAF attaché side of it, I I got through talking to Jerry Brown, who was um, who I first met uh, when I was writing Vulcan Six Hundred Seven, because he was the guy who had to deal with the Vulcan that landed in oh, in yes. Rio, uh, sort of rather <laughs> unexpectedly. Uh, but he said that he was sent off while uh, the. <laughs> well, the the, um, the ambassador told everyone he was having an affair. Just to try to explain it that he was sent off to. Uh, to that was to, to give to, them uh, the excuse of why he was no longer in his yeah, office. Why not, I think it's Recife, yeah. which is the furthest north yes. uh, airfield, which is where these resupply flights were coming in. He was sent off there with binoculars to kind of observe them coming through, and he saw crates that looked. Oh, he, he managed to get a a kind of um, a, a, a spy onto the plane. Um, it's, it's a sort of um, an air varig, wouldn't it be? A, a varig employee to actually looked at some of the cargo on the Argentinian plane and realised that there were uh, crates that he thought might have been big enough to carry Exocet. So then the argument raged between MI6 and, and Jerry about how they might deal with this. And uh, MI6 was saying, right, we want you like a kind of SOE um, uh, 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 operative to, to take sort of plastic explosives onto the airfield and <laughs> blow up the undercarriage and, how, you know, stop them like that. And Jerry's saying, no, what we want to do is take it out using F4s from, uh, from Ascension Island. Um, and just the notion that that conversation was going on, I thought, was exciting. It's James Bond-esque, isn't it? No, it's James. I mean, yeah. the, this, this book's sort of full of those James Bond-esque stories. And then, you know, similarly, the uh, the RAF very early in the war sent um, a Spanish-speaking liaison officer um, to Chile. 
to try to manage the uh, the top secret, still top secret effort uh, the RAF was uh, mounting uh, inside Chile to provide the uh, the the fleet with early warning of air, of, of air attack, and so. This chap, Sidney Edwards, um, uh, went off on his uh, you know, commercial flight to, to, to Chile, uh, and he, he he took with him his sword uh, because uh, you know what just wasn't sure quite what was going to be expected uh, of him when he got there. He soon realised that you know a, a military officer with a sword in in Chile was very very underarmed uh, by comparison <laughs> to what all of the members of the, the Chilean uh, junta were carrying. And so I mean, there's a uh, a briefcase spilled off a table at one point, <laughs> and a whole lot of hand grenades rolled yes. onto the floor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know they're all obviously carrying guns as well. But but Sydney Edwards went out there um, and helped install a, a, a SAS. Uh, it's actually Signals Regiment um, SAS support team uh, in the headquarters of the Chilean um, intelligence Air Force intelligence. Um, uh, uh, organization. So they had a sort of antenna farm on the roof of, of, of that building and they set up two SATCOM aerials that have been borrowed from uh, from special forces in the US uh, and uh, they, they relayed um, radar information from uh, air defense radars that were mounted close to the Chile and Argentinian border which could provide details of what were the strike packages that were taking off and heading, heading east. But the RAF also uh, took a um, a redundant radar out of storage in Watersham and flew it out to uh, to Chile with a ten man RAF team who were you know wearing civilian clothes and uh, um, told that <laughs> told that the friendlies were Chileans there were other British personnel uh, the enemy was the Argentinian illegal occupiers but they, they I mean they didn't go into to Argentina but they were mounted close to the uh, border with their uh, Marconi S two five nine um air defense radar and that's that's before you get to the prospect of flying cameras uh down to punta arenas and refueling on a stretch of the pan-american highway using i mean literally using tins of of fuel along the flare path burning fuel to guide them in at, at dawn then taking fuel it's off like a soe Hercules. operations into um into yeah. occupied I mean, it's, it's yeah. just, in the war it's a, you know there, there, there was um in order to uh, kind of scope out potential airfields that the RAF could use in, in Chile, one of the uh, 39 Squadron uh, liaison team who, who went out there early was sort of being driven around in the boot of a car with a blanket over, or the back seat of a car with a blanket <laughs> over it so that people wouldn't, wouldn't uh, see him. I mean, and, and you know, some of those um, RAF Nimrod missions were hairy. Uh, you know, there was an occasion where they got a... Um, uh, they were painted with a, a Mirage air intercept uh, radar, and they dived to. Uh, that to means see de- that means detected. Um, when you yeah. talk about painting by radar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. It was a, you know, they knew they'd got a. Uh, they'd been picked up by a, a fighter, um, and that that was about all they knew. And they didn't know whether his that fighter's intentions were hostile uh, or not. Um, and uh, so they just dived to low level over the Beagle Channel and and back into sort of low level into, into Chilean airspace. Um, and on another mission, they lost an engine um, and went screaming into this island in uh, the Pacific, which is literally a runway on yes. an island. I mean, there's a cliff at either end. If you look at, I mean, I've been tweeting some pictures of it. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I mean, this is where it gets really James Bond, as well as that yeah. runway on the island. There was a kind of big cave entrance, which was used as a sort of secret submarine base. And even the, the Chilean uh, 
Chilean intelli- uh, naval intelligence guys showing um, Sidney Edwards around said, you know, that if you if you think you, what, what you've seen so far is James Bond, you know, wait till you get a load of this. <laughs> um, you've rather and, spilled uh, the beans now, haven't you? <laughs> you've yeah, 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 no, no, I mean... It, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's gravy around on the internet. You can definitely find that secret evidence of the secret submarine base. But um, I mean, I you know, I just loved all that stuff. Um, I mean, e- even the Attorney General here, um, uh, Sir Michael Havers, who actually Nigel Havers' dad. Yeah. Um, he um, he was saying, look, I've got this. Uh, I had I've had this plan presented to me by uh, you know a guy who really knows his onions with respect to air transport. He's thinking of getting his own. He's going to make a bid for Exocet missiles, so that when he wins the air transport bid for flying them to Argentina, he's going to have his man on board who's going to hijack their own transport yeah. mission and get them off to um, <laughs> to a sort of secret location. But Margaret Thatcher, obviously, knowing that um, uh, this was already in hand with, by with with this mi6 operation and uh with what we were up to already in chile uh uh kind of just you know put it to one side and and thanked him for his enthusiasm but uh, <laughs> you know that it's the, the the story as i said is sort of rich with the what became a very very sort of multi-layered um and urgent effort uh both uh, down south at sea and in the air uh, but also back home and around the world and back home you know, we, we were still uh, a, a country which had uh, vast resources in terms of um, departments, establishments, um, organisations that specialised in everything from birds uh, to radar. I mean, there was a report on the sort of um, the, the the bird life that British forces might expect <laughs> from the bird unit at, um, I think it was somewhere called Warpledon in Sussex or something. Yeah. West I mean, they, 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 they even had a line in there saying that the biggest bird you're going to find down there is a penguin. Um, and, uh, you know, how that... And they, even, they did have the sort of good grace to acknowledge that as far as pilots were concerned, it probably wasn't much of a... <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they did say that they can jump a bit. Really? But it, I mean, and I, I mean, as it as it happened, obviously, um, you know, we did we lost a, um, a seeking uh, in an accident that you know there was some debate about what caused the seeking uh, that went down with the SAS on board tragically as they were cross-decking from Hermes to one of the assault ships. But, um, you know, certainly one theory is that it was, uh, it was brought down by a, a seabird. Um, mm. and, um, and so I, I suppose, you know, I jest about the contribution of the bird unit, but, um, <laughs> you know, we, we, there was enormous sort of strength and depth, whether it was designing new camouflage schemes using airfix models at Farnborough, mm. Uh, or that bird unit, or or, or being able to uh, transform a, a transatlantic cargo ship into mm. what was almost a sort of um, a third flat top in the form of uh, Atlantic conveyor in a, in a matter of days. I mean, the, the, the effort was extraordinary. That's what I loved about both Vulcan 67 and this book, as far as I've got so far, is Britain's ability at that time. It's mm. a bit like when you did the Olympics, you know, if we really yeah. need to do it, we can do it. If yeah. you know, if you're on a war footing, it's amazing what you can achieve. And, and the whole Atlantic conveyor thing, you know, the, as you said, the, the 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 merchant navy vessel that was converted in a matter of days was extraordinary. And I love I love all yeah. that. I love reading about the, what what can be done when people actually want to do it. I agree. 
I, I mean, I, that's the thing which, um, I mean, I, you know, just it's so exciting when you realise uh, just what is possible at very short notice. I mean, um, you know, the, all, all the sort of usual um, rules and regulations got sort of chopped up. I mean, they're drilling hole, holes in the Harriers so that the seawater could um, could drain away. Because then, I mean, you know, we, we were, I mean, there's a, this is this huge debate about whether or not we'd have been better off with a sort of big fixed wing carrier like Ark Royal. Um and um, I mean, there, there is debate still within the fleet air arms squadrons that um, that, that flew the Harriers down there. Um, and that would have allowed us uh, to operate Buccaneers and Phantoms, presumably. Buccaneers that, and Phantoms. But yeah. I mean, I, I would suggest that um, possibly. I mean, it, it's it's a very interesting debate, which is not well conducted on Twitter. Um, certainly, the Phantoms uh, were uh, supported by uh, Gannets providing aerial early warning. Would have been almost perfectly set up for the war in the South Atlantic in that you knew that the Argentines were going to be flying in from the West. They, they didn't have the capacity to do anything really, except in tiny numbers, other than fly in from the West because of the distances involved, which meant that you could actually set up a screen of, um, of phantoms between the Argentinian mainland uh, and the Falkland Islands. And any strike package that comes in you can just take down. You know it's not going to be friendly, mm. so you don't have to worry too much about uh, identifying them. You know you can just use medium-range missiles like sparrows to just take them down, and each Phantom would be carrying four of them and four Sidewinders. So they, they, the war would have suited um, Phantoms with powerful pulse Doppler radars, which could sort of look down and see... Uh, attackers at low level in a way that the Sea Harrier radar really couldn't um, terribly well. Was the um, so? Did, do you think the Argentinians knew this um, when they when they invaded that, that they'd got rid of the the big? Yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, absolutely, they did. I mean, the Argentines were uh, you know a, a professional, well drilled and courageous uh, um, uh, outfit. I mean, what what they really really lacked though uh, was the support of powerful allies uh, and uh, and related to that in, in to, to a certain extent was the kind of rigorous uh, and routine um, and uh, frequent peer-to-peer uh, -peer training that the British pilots all involved or all enjoyed with NATO forces I yeah. mean that you know the British pilots, the Sea Harrier pilots, uh, there with the frontline squadrons, and many of the pilots who were actually down there uh, with um, with eight oh nine as well, um, had so much experience flying against F fifteens, F sixteens, Phantoms, Mirages, Jaguars. You know that lightnings. That, that you know they'd flown against, uh, you know all their their NATO partners mm. in, in instrumented training ranges um, in Europe, uh, but also I mean particularly in Sardinia, uh, the Deci range there. So the Sea Harriers, even though they weren't as capable um, as the, the, the Phantoms on paper, um, were flown by pilots who really, really understood what they could do, but also, importantly, what they couldn't do. And actually, the Argentines understood that as well. You know, they, they, they were not fools. They knew that the Sea Harrier was a strong proposition down low, mm. but that at height, perhaps their supersonic mirages might enjoy uh, some advantage. Um, and so there was then the sort of competition to try to either drag the um, air fighting down to the to low level, and, and ultimately, you know, if you were going to attack a ship, you had to come in at low level. Um, but... 
significantly on the first day of the fighting, the Sea Harriers got the better of the um, the, the Argentinian Mirage fighter squadron. Uh, and rather than, uh, than than tackle the Sea Harriers again, they were sort of withdrew to lick their wounds, mm. um, and uh, and so then the strike packages coming in low didn't have uh, fighter escort, uh, and that was really critical because it meant that the Sea Harriers um, were able to uh, take them on, even though they didn't know that there was not going to be any fighter escort. They had to sort of work on the assumption that there was but they they were able to operate down low where they were at their strongest um with a missile that was i, I think the figure at the end of the war was 87 percent um reliable and but the really critical thing we got onto this because we we're talking about the phantoms and the sea harriers the really critical thing was that you had 12 phantoms on on arc royal and by 1978 when arc royal retired and certainly by 1982 um the pool of pilots and navigators um, who were carrier qualified really didn't extend a great deal further than than was required to fly those 12 Phantoms. You couldn't just fly RAF Phantoms onto an aircraft carrier, Mm -hmm. but the only place you could operate Phantoms from was the aircraft carrier. And they were certainly more complicated, more temperamental airplane than the Harriers were. Um, So you couldn't replace the, the Phantoms. If any were lost, either through through um uh, through fighting through combat through reliability problems unserviceability or simply because they failed to make be able to make it back to the carrier in the terrible weather that was experience that they were experiencing down there then you start to sort of um, eat away at your only 12 strong force of, of of fighters and you wouldn't have been able to replace them whereas with the sea harriers first of all you had 809 coming down so you had another eight sea harriers on the way and those pilot i mean John Leeming and Steve Brown had never landed on an aircraft carrier <laughs> before they landed on Hermes. Um, but they, because the Harrier stopped before it landed, um, they were able to do it. Um, and and, and you, you didn't either, as a result, just have that pool of sea Harriers. You also had about 100 RAF um, Harriers that could almost, which the, the, the RAF developed a sort of training pipeline to uh, reinforce the, the, um, the carriers. So you could almost bring in reinforcements as were required, um, flown by pilots who'd never flown off a carrier, and uh, a number of, you know, John Leeming uh, and Steve Brown and, and, and Murdo McLeod, actually he'd flown Phantoms, but hadn't flown the Harrier off a carrier before, uh, were able to sort of reinforce um, the, the, the Harriers and Sea Harriers that were down south. And you could not have done that with any other aeroplane. So as the, uh, as the Argentine... Um, uh, fast jet force uh, became weaker and weaker as they, you know, they lost 23 to the Sea Harriers. They lost others in accidents. Uh, they lost a good number to um, surface-to-air missiles from the from the ships as well. Um, we remained in a position where, providing we kept those carriers safe, we could keep providing them with more aeroplanes, even if. Um, they were not as well trained in air defence uh, or as in well trained in operating from a carrier as their as the the uh, jets and the pilots that had been down before them. But that sort of cross fertilisation between RAF and fleet air arm. I mean, you had RAF hmm. Harrier pilots flying Sea Harriers. I think I'm yep. right in saying that's right. And I think with poor poor old John Leeming, on a couple of occasions, he realised that he actually didn't know how to fire his missiles or, in fact, his guns. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was well, almost that, I mean, going to say, like, we still haven't talked about my favourite part of the whole book, which is all the air combat, which is yeah. the last yeah. 150 pages, which yes. is like, I read in about an hour and a half, and we haven't even got to that bit. Yeah, I mean that 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 was the that was always the sort of icing on the cake, and that was if I could just make all that. Uh, and you know it's a gift. If I could just make all that sort of secret squirrel stuff exciting enough, and obviously you've got that, you've got spy planes, you've got submarines, you've got special forces operations, yeah. um, you've got um, um, you know the, the sort of potential involvement of the Americans. Um, if I could kind of make that uh, readable and exciting, um, then on top of that, you knew you had uh, to actually a greater extent than any book I've written before. I mean, it, you know, I, I was. I mean, Vulcan six or seven obviously is a is a massive combat mission, um, but uh, and and dramatic in so many ways. But I've never really had an opportunity to write uh, or try to recreate dogfights, re- yeah. recreate um, fight fighting in the air before, and that so that was a that was an absolute joy for me. I mean, really trying to just imagine myself in the in the cockpit, and that that's that's I suppose what I'm always. I sort of kind of my way with the fairies a bit when I'm writing. Really <laughs> yeah, yeah but, but totally Rowley, if you can make <laughs> if you can make eleven Victor tankers refueling a Vulcan seven times exciting, which you did, <laughs> I reckon you can make dogfights pretty exciting. They are. Uh, I was going to actually ask you later to explain the whole refueling plan for uh, for Operation Black, but we'll come on to that. See how much else we have to discuss in the meantime. Jez hasn't even got to the dogfights yet. So yeah, on the in in the you, you, you talk about the um, both Harrys, but particularly the Sea Harry's ability to viff, as in use its yeah. vectors in, in forward flight. Um, obviously, that's in a turning dogfight. Mm-hmm. But, but after that, there's no mention of them actually using it in the in the dogfights themselves. Was that ever used, or was it just something up their sleeve? Uh, to, to the best of my knowledge, it was used twice. Um, it was used once by um, Dave Morgan, um, who was one of the highest scoring. In fact, he was the highest scoring. Um, pilot uh through through the war he was an raf pilot um you mentioned rob that sort of cross-fertilization i think that's one of the um it's one of the really appealing stories in the book is that uh certainly at a an operational level like the, the the strong um relationships that there were within the squadrons between the raf and navy components which is something we're seeing again now with sort of f-35 and queen elizabeth but um no i mean sort of back the, the the viffing was something which uh, you know was well understood. It was used by, uh, but it was all the consequences of it were also uh, well understood. It was it was, really was a last ditch yeah. thing to try and shake somebody who was on your tail if you really had to, and that never actually happened. Mm. So preferable always um, is to try to maintain your energy, maintain your speed, yeah. rather than lose it. I mean the Sea Harrier and the Harrier were good dogfighters at low level because they had such a a high thrust to weight ratio which meant that compared to many airplanes they could they could accelerate and rebuild that um speed uh, down low um faster than certainly you know a mirage could mm. down low despite the mirage being sort of on the face of it uh sleeker and more pointy um, but the viffing in the end was never required to get out of trouble uh, it was used by Dave Morgan to try to give himself the angle he needed to get a shot at a, a, a Picara that was flying at low level mm-hmm. over um, the water over Stanley Harbour. Yeah. Um, he never quite managed to do it. Um, and then the other occasion, I, I think that it was used 
It was only by um, Bob Iverson, who was one of the Harrier GR3 pilots who went down um, on the Atlantic conveyor, um, who, um, in support of the paras at Goose, Goose Green, um, very bravely uh, went round again and again and again <laughs> to try to beat back um, uh, the, um, the the Argent- Argentines um, and keep the paras safe. And um, he he was hit. Uh, and uh, he, he he realized that he was losing the jet. He, he couldn't move his control column um, at all. Um, and so he uh, uh, realized that the only way he was going to be able to stay in the air uh, long enough to try and make it back over uh, um, British lines and not come down in Argentinian-held territory, uh, which obviously, having just bombed them, he didn't think was a good idea, <laughs> was, to, was to viff and to try and keep his aeroplane in the air on a column of, of jet thrust yeah. rather than by using the uh, the ailerons, which yeah. is what one would normally do to try and bring the nose of the, the jet up. And, um, you know, he, he managed this for a little while uh, before flames started to come in through the air vents from, the, from the, the Harrier that was sort of starting to burn and disintegrate around him. And he pulled the uh, ejection seat handle and, um, and got out uh, and uh, at a very low level and, you know, skidded along. I mean, he feels that because he landed on a slope of wet grass, he was... Uh, he was. Um, he got a much softer landing than than, than he might have done. But but um, no. When he when he, I mean, when he finally thought he got to um, to safety, um, he sort of reached for the cigarettes he spare cigarettes he he packed in the pocket of his flight suit, gasping by that point, um, and uh, realised that 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 pair spare packet of cigarettes had been ripped off in the ejection. Um, <laughs> So it had to do with, <laughs> to do with the sort of bacon yes, and eggs you found in the and from, from, from then on, Harrier pilots always had a special cigarette pouch, didn't they? I think. Yeah, no, it was um, yeah, Desmond Llewellyn gave it to them. From yeah, Chico. yeah. Oh, you. And this bond is your special cigarette pouch. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's a, there's an also because all Harrier pilots have um, have these leather or used to have leather straps over their laces on their flying boots. They were particular Harrier flying boots. And no one else in the Air Force could understand why the Harrier pilots, to prove they were Harrier pilots, had these... And I think in one ejection, somebody lost a boot during the ejection because they, their laces were ripped off. So they decided that all Harrier pilots would have leather really? straps over their boots. <laughs> it wouldn't I'm surprise su- me if... Um, <laughs> They just put leather boot, leather straps on their boots, just so that everybody knew they were Harrier. Well, you know, they, they'll, they'll normally tell you. That it would have saved, saved them having to say so in the first ten seconds. Did, did you not have anything like on the on the puma force, James? Um, no. Yeah, we had uh, Argentinian markings on most of our pumas. If you know, we had one puma um, from that was part of the Falklands, but it was Argentinian. Is and we right? nicked it and brought it back home. And ZE449, I think, was an yeah. ex-Argentinian puma that we stole from the Falklands. Is that right? And I think there's a yeah. in the book you talk about the shooting down of three of the four pumas. The yes. one, the yeah. one that got yeah. away became an RAF puma. Did, yeah. Did you ever fly it? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. 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 Mm. And now it's damaged. It's still there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't yeah, manage to damage that one. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that reminds me. I mean, that, that's part of the story of the Harrier, isn't it? That uh, they had um, when they were testing the Kestrels uh, at West Raynham. Was it West Raynham? I think so. Um, they had a. It was a tri-national um, a test squadron of Americans, Germans, and Brits. And one of the German test pilots on the squadron was a. a, a, a 
an, a German Luftwaffe ace from Second World War, an incredible tally of um, kills to his name. Um, for sake of argument, let's say it was 300. And he landed very hard in the, um, in the Kestrel and bent it a bit <laughs> and um, uh, kind of swaggered back to the mess saying, that'll make it 301 then. <laughs> <laughs> And you can hear the rest of that interview with Roland White next week on Top Landing Gear. Now, in the meantime, go and buy Harrier 809. You won't regret it. It is awesome. And just by the way, we are not getting paid to say that. We are just huge fans of the book and of Roland. Obviously, Jez is a super fan. And before I go, I just want to say thank you to everybody we met in Lincoln last week whilst recording episodes for Series 3. You've made sure that Top Landing Gear is going to be bigger and better than ever. We'll see you next week. <laughs>